The scripture for the sermon today is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. This is God's word. Thank you, Kitty. As I mentioned, next Sunday we're going to begin our Advent series, but... um, this Sunday, um, we're going to finish up chapter 6. We were going through Mark all summer and into the fall. So this will complete chapter 6, and then we'll pick it up in the new year. If you remember, in the beginning of Mark, Jesus reveals himself. He shows that he has authority over people. He shows he has authority in teaching. He shows he has authority over nature when he calms a storm. He gathers together a group of disciples, and he begins to train them. He takes them repeatedly up into the wilderness to teach them and to show them uh, what he's all about, to share himself with them. And then we get this strange story. Right before this, out in the wilderness, people who've been trying to follow Jesus come to find him in the wilderness, 5,000 of them. And uh, when they realize, when Jesus and his disciples realize that they have no food, Jesus feeds 5,000 with just a few loaves. And so this is what happens immediately after that. Immediately, by the way, this is a characteristic of Mark, uh, which is based on Peter's recollection. Peter was an illiterate man. He did not have much writing style, and this is how he tells his story. Immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and then immediately this happened, and it's kind of clunky. It's a sign of Peter, actually, is what it is. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. This is the crowd that he's just fed. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, And he was alone on the land. So Jesus has gathered together this group, this 12, and he has been training them. He's been teaching them. He has been showing them through example how to deal with people, how to heal people. If you recall, he he sent them out two by two to minister in his name with his power, healing people and casting out demons. So this is part of the training process of the disciples. Jesus is essentially replacing himself. He is creating a group that will become the Christian church, that will become the body of Christ active in the world. And so this is all part of that training process. 
And notice verse 45, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. This isn't casual. Jesus is telling them what to do. They're on a program. They're on a regime. They are being trained. Verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now the word there, straining, in English, is the Greek word for torment or torture. Jesus has forced his disciples to go out on the lake at night and row against the wind. This is deliberate. If you've ever tried to row against the wind, you will know that that is extremely hard, very tiring. Why would Jesus, meek and mild, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, why would that Jesus torment deliberately, torture his disciples? Doesn't sound the, the happy band of hippie, peace and light, love and groovy vibes. This is a hardcore training program. In fact, what it sounds like is the military. In the military, this is called adversity training. Making people face up to tough situations and training them together to deal with that. I learned all about that when I was a kid. Uh, when in my teens, young and foolish, I had a romantic idea that I wanted to have a red beret. And the parachute regiment who have red berets was only 15 miles from my house. And so I signed up to take their training program. And uh, I was, it's kind of the equivalent of the National Guard. They had the professionals and they, they had the part-time warriors. But you go through the same course. And the wake-up call is the first day when they make you run six miles in all the gear they've just given you, all brand new, in brand new boots, unbroken in. And you run through the woods, up and down hills. It is miserable. And about a mile from the end, it's actually longer than a mile, it says a mile. There's a grinning para, a, a picture, and underneath it's, it says, it's only pain, and you are in pain. And we ran in teams up and down sand dunes with our wrists tied to telegraph poles. We ran through the woods for sometimes up to 12 miles with full gear and 40 pounds of sand in our packs. We went over assault courses covered with mud, covered with water, slippery. We went through aerial assault courses with frozen hands. We were sent into rooms filled with tear gas. We were forced to go through submerged pipes filled with muddy cold water out in the mountains, not allowed to use our hands or kick our feet. But the worst, absolutely the worst, was escape and evasion training. They bring down a regiment from Scotland, because the Scots hate the English, and they let you loose in this large woods. And it's at night. And five minutes after they've let you loose, they let the Scots loose. And the Scots are tasked with hunting you down. And believe me, you do not know what fear is until you've been chased through the woods at night by large, hairy Scotsmen. It is not good to be caught by them. But the result is this tremendous sense of unity and camaraderie. You've overcome obstacles together. You've seen each other at the extremity. You know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And you become a band of brothers. You become incredibly connected to the other people in the group. 
I think that's exactly what Jesus is, does with his disciples. He is teaching them to trust each other. He is teaching them to be a brotherhood, to be able to suffer, to be able to confront adversity and challenge, to be able to go out in the world in Jesus' name and conquer it in his name. But then he does something even more extraordinary. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass, them, pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. What a strange story. Now remember, Jesus made them go out on the lake. And he, it was night. He could have just passed them. So this is deliberate. Jesus wants them to see him walking on the water. The disciples need to see this aspect of who he is as their leader. So what is he doing? Well, if you read the first six chapters of Mark, you see that Jesus progressively reveals himself. He doesn't start by telling anybody, even the disciples, who he really is. It's a progressive, step-by-step revelation. It reminds me of that song by David Bowie, Rocket Man. He'd like to get to know us, but he thinks he'll blow our minds. I think that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He is progressively revealing, step-by-step, who he is until he can let them know that he really is God, that he really is the one who is sent as Savior of the world, and that this is one of those steps. It's like he's lifting the veil, revealing that he's not just an inspired prophet or a great teacher or a powerful leader. We get, begin to get a glimpse here of the cosmic Christ, the incarnation of God, where he begins to truly reveal who he is. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. Adversity training binds the disciples together as brothers, as a band of brothers who are able to overcome adversity. But the divine Jesus, the one who reveals himself to be the cosmic Christ, not just an inspired man, is the reason that they have nothing to fear in this world. By the way, this group of mainly illiterate, uneducated people, many of them humble fishermen, go on to conquer the Roman Empire, the largest empire in the world up to that point. Within 400 years after this, the Roman Empire is Christian. How did that happen? How did they become so brave? Why were they so fearless? Because they knew that God, through Christ, had their back. That they knew, through him, they were connected to the only power that really matters, a power that can overcome anything. And that is what made them fearless. That is what Jesus was teaching them. 
And by the way, notice how he says it. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That's not just a suggestion. That's a command. God's people are not to be afraid in this world. God's people are to have courage because of God and the connection that they have with him through Christ as Father. That is the source of Christian fearlessness. The ability of Christians to face adversity, the ability of Christians to face any power that this world has to offer. So what application might that have to us here this morning? Well, think what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He is taking them beyond their comfort zone, beyond their ordinary lives, and he is saying, don't be afraid, I am sending you out. I am enlarging your life, the meaning of your life, the purpose of your life, the scope of your life. No longer this little comfortable life as fishermen on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm sending you out into the world. Don't be afraid. Well, think of your life. Think of my life. Think of most people's lives. How do we live? Most people, most of the time, try to avoid pain and discomfort, have a little fun, keep to themselves, be comfortable. We do ordinary, familiar things because it's what we know. It's what we know how to do. It's familiar. It's comfortable. It's predictable. Now, when we're young and reckless, we expand our comfort zones. We learn new things. We go to new places. We meet new people. We, we bring in new ideas to our life. We expand. That's what being a child, being an adolescent is all about, trying new things, learning what's good and what's bad, making mistakes, being humiliated, being rejected, suffering, learning what you're capable of in the world. And somewhere, we lose that. Somewhere in our 20s or 30s, we stop expanding. We know what roughly we can do. We know what we're comfortable with. We settle on a few options. We avoid what we think is bad. We create these little bubbles of life, these little comfortable zones that are predictable, that are the result of our habits and patterns of life, that we understand, that are easy. And most people stay there. A small life defined by being a little bit reckless when you're young, bold when you're young, and most people, most of the time, that's who they are. But that's not good enough. Jesus, God, created human beings to have abundant life. What does that mean? Unlimited life. Not to live in a little bubble. Not to live defined by what you're familiar with and being afraid of everything outside. Rather, unlimited life, a life that embraces all the possibilities inherent in who we are. What stops us doing that? Fear. Fear of the new, fear of the unknown, fear of the unpredictable, 
Fear of going out and trying something new and being humiliated and failing. Fear of the unknown void out there. The place that we can't control. And what is Jesus saying? Do not fear. Take courage. I am with you. There is no limits on your life. It is not just about what you know how to do. It's not about your habits or patterns. It doesn't matter what happened in your past. Because I am with you, and because I am the cosmic Christ, the creator of all things, you do not have to live in this little bubble. You do not have to fear. What would happen to your life if you believed that? If you had a personal relationship and you knew it with God, access to all the resources of heaven, what would you do? What if you knew that there was nothing in this world you had to fear? What things in your life would become more significant? What things would become less relevant or unimportant? What would you stop doing or worrying about if you knew that for a fact. What would you do? What would you try? What would you attempt if you absolutely believed that the power of God was available to you? That he would be with you and nothing bad could ever happen to you? What would you attempt? What would you spend your time doing? What sort of plans would you make with your life? That's what this is all about. Becoming a disciple of Christ is learning two things. That we, together, are a band. I mean, you heard from Jerry how he has been supported by this church. One of the purposes of the church is for us to support each other and take care of each other, to be alongside each other on the journey. But underneath that, the foundation of the church is this promise from Christ. I am with you. Take courage. Don't be afraid. The church is the body of Christ. That is the active presence of Christ in the world about his business and his agenda. A, a church that is not defined by fear. So as I'm talking, each one of you and I know this because it's true for me too. Each one of you knows of at least one thing that you love to do, always dreamt of doing. Maybe it's on your bucket list. But you're afraid to try. Fear has quenched it, has stopped it. Maybe put up a mental block. What is Jesus commanding you to do? Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. If you are in the habit of prayer and spending time with Christ, I do it, by the way, with a journal, ask him the question every morning, every time you pray, what do you want me to do? Here I am, Lord. And I guarantee that you will come up with some things that Christ wants you to do. And they will be scary. They will be terrifying you will come up with many reasons why you cannot do those things. And at that moment, 
you have to remember, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And the Christians who have taken that seriously down through the ages are the reason that the Christian church has spread. You know, some years ago when I first um, was a pastor, somebody asked me a similar question in a prayer meeting. And uh, I was at Redeemer in the City, and Redeemer in the City was all about church planning, and so kind of glibly I would say, oh, I plan a church. But planning a church is incredibly, ridiculously hard. Everybody knows that. I think the success rate when I first started was uh, four out of churches failed that were planted by people. They've got better at it. That was the statistic that I had been told. And yet the question kept coming up. It was like wishing I was an astronaut or lived on a yacht in the Caribbean. It was an aspiration, but it wasn't concrete. It wasn't real. It was just, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to plan a church. And then I was at a prayer meeting with a group of, play, of church planters. And one of them, uh, Demas Celebarius, who planted the church in the Bronx, he asked me that question. And I, you know, I gave, me, gave him my glib answer. And he didn't say a word. He just looked at me and he smiled. And it suddenly struck me, this was not an abstract question. He meant it. And it was a moment of exquisite spiritual crisis. Because I'd just begun as a pastor. I was still working out what it meant. But I realized at that moment what his question was. Do you really believe in God? If you do, if you really believe that the creator of the universe, omnipotent, infinite, all-knowing, if you really believed that he had your back, that you could ask him for anything, what wouldn't you try? And I realized at that moment I had to decide, was I going to play at being a pastor? Or was I going to give it a go? And the fact is, I came to Hoboken because of Demos. Now, I'm not a great pastor, I know that. But I wouldn't even have started. I'd probably be down somewhere in the Caribbean on, a, on an old yacht if Demos hadn't challenged me right then. And you, who knows if you've been sitting in this gym right now. I think that this is the nature of Christian life. It's a series of steps, a series of faith steps. Do you believe in God? If so, he asks you to take a step of faith. And he's always faithful. And then there's another step. Do you really believe? Do you really, really, really believe? And incrementally, our lives expand. I think, by the way, that this is what is meant in the Bible by becoming the new man, where the old dies and you become this new thing. You become this new life. New set of patterns, new set of habits, a new set of goals. As you step by step, draw closer to God, more than that, fill out your faith. Grow your faith and trust as you see that he's been there step by step by step. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. This is another weird transition in the story. What are they, what is the connection that they're making here? 
Remember, right before this, Jesus fed 5,000 people with the loaves. And if you recall, when we went through that passage, Jesus was showing them his continuity with the Old Testament, where God, when he led the Israelites out into the wilderness and the desert, where God provided manna every day so that they could survive in the wilderness. Step by step by step, as he took them to the promised land, he fed them, he took care of them, he provided resources where there were no resources. He provided manna, he provided water. God was teaching Israel that they could trust God, they could trust him, that he is there, he will provide, and no matter where they were, no matter how impossible the circumstances, God would take care of them. Even a whole nation of people out in the desert, even a Christian church. God is there for us because God is everywhere and he will provide. Can you trust him? Well, that's what Jesus is showing his disciples. I am walking on the water, guys. I'm, look at me. I'm out here on the lake. I'm walking on water. Do you think there's anything that I can't do for you? I am not just an inspired teacher. I'm not a regular guy. Here I am, out on the water. He is revealing to them what they're putting their faith in. They're putting their faith in the Son of God the Father. And that is their connection. And therefore, they have nothing to fear. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can't we achieve if we believe that that is true. Here's another story about my, uh, my childhood. I grew up in the 60s. I was born in 61, the year John F. Kennedy promised to go to the moon. And he did it. America went to the moon in, in 1969. And I remember, I was eight years old, and my dad called me in from the garden. He said, you want to watch this. This is important. And this grainy black and white picture of Neil Armstrong taking the first step on the moon. Incredible. I was only eight. I knew it was extraordinary. And at that time, astronauts were the heroes of the world. Everybody wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be an astronaut. They would sit on the top of these massive rockets filled with enough fuel to blow up a small town while all their friends retired miles away and hid in bunkers. And then they would go to the moon and if anything went wrong, they would be stuck. More stuck than any human beings have ever been stuck. Alone, beyond human help, beyond any possibility of rescue, without any hope at all. But actually, that's not true. They did have hope. Alongside Neil Armstrong, there was the other astronaut who went to the moon, Buzz Aldrin. And Buzz Aldrin, was an elder at a Presbyterian church in Texas. And he decided when he went to the moon, he was not going to go alone. And so he writes about what happened when they landed on the moon, what happened immediately after they landed. This is from his book, A Magnificent Desolation. In a little while, after our scheduled meal period, Neil would give the signal to step down the ladder onto the powdery surface of the moon. 
Now was the moment for communion, the Lord's Supper. So I unstowed the elements in their flight packets. I put them and the scripture reading on the little table in front of the abort guidance system computer. Then I called back to Houston. Houston, this is Eagle. This is the lunar module pilot speaking. I would like to request a few moments of silence. I would like to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours. And to invite each person listening, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours and give thanks in his own individual way. In the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained bread and wine. I poured the wine into the chalice of our, our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquids, the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten there were communion elements. Before taking communion, Aldrin silently read a passage from the Bible which he had written on a piece of paper. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. That is incredible. Now, he was a brave and a smart man. But he did what he did because he had Jesus with him. He knew that he was there because of his faith. And he celebrated that. He had a connection with God, the creator of all things, through Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. Sacrifice that we are going to celebrate in a moment. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then there is nothing to fear. And there is no part of this world or any world that you can go to without him, where he won't be there, taking care of you, at your back, guaranteeing that you will be safe. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. That is a command. And Jesus can make that command because he promises he is going to be with us. Now I'm going to close by reading one of my favorite, favorite psalms. This is Psalm 139. Is Jesus with you? Listen to what the psalmist says. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind, and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, 
Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Take courage. God is with us. Wherever we go, fear not. Go out of your comfort zone. As a church, we should be out going out of our comfort zone. We should be following this command and doing wonderful things in Jesus' name. Let's pray.